like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, I'll be finishing up my thoughts on Color Clock World. Uh, this is my fourth part of my review of this, so we'll just go back and listen to the previous three parts if you're if you're just joining us. Um, it'll cover chapters 16 through 21, but I'm not going to say too much about the, the story because there, there's not that much to add from the first three parts. Obviously, we're in a world in which the dead are rising because of the Hobart phase, this kind of backwards shifting of time. And then the novel really explores the social, uh, political to some degree, and um, religious consequences of that. This is actually one of Dick's more religious novels in the sense that it's really dealing with this profound theological question of death and rebirth and what it means and, and how that ties to, to one's purpose in life. Right. It's also got a lot of interesting things to say about institutions of power. In this case, it's the library, which through the control of knowledge is able to exert its power. In fact, it's the main institute that's responsible for destroying knowledge because as the Hobart phase contracts, time kind of goes in reverse, the library then has got the responsibility of destroying knowledge rather than preserving and creating it. Which is actually kind of an interesting idea when you think about it because you know, now I guess censorship is a little bit less, but in Dick's day and age, there was, was still some censorship and governments would sometimes restrict knowledge. And of course, uh, the way that I guess libraries choose their collections, they're not always equal and, and, and fair. It's not, we're not, I'm not saying they exactly are destroying knowledge, but they don't necessarily always have a complete collection, right? And there's always local policies on book banning or something or, or restricting books. So, um, there's, I guess, an element of the library, which has always been kind of a gatekeeper of knowledge, if not a, a destroyer of it. But this goes a lot farther, showing the library as a very powerful institution because it has the ability to, and the duty to actually destroy knowledge is called um, irradiating knowledge. Um, so by this point in the novel, our main character, Sebastian Hermes, has decided that he's going to have to go into the library and try to save the Anarch Peak, a recently revived person who many different groups want because he was an old religious leader. So he's wanted by the movement. He's wanted a little bit by Rome. He's wanted by the library too because the library wants to erad any knowledge he'll create. They don't want him going back to writing and speaking. So um, the library has seized the Anarch. They've kind of won out in this competition. And Sebastian Hermes in part because his wife has also been kidnapped by the library, has decided he's going to go in and, and try this covert mission to, to take back the Anarch. Uh, that, the night after he makes the decision to go, he gets the plan. The plan is to pretend he's a scholar trying to e-write his PhD dissertation, essentially, which is a weird um, minor work. But he wants to get it eradicated in a formal way by the library for his prestige. That's who he's pretending to be. He also gets a, what's called a survival kit. And the survival kit has an LSD kind of neutralizer, an LSD bomb, and then a chemical that will reverse or stop the Hobart phase for him. So he won't go forward in time or backward in time in a, in a short window of, I guess I can't even say time in that sense, but it's, it's for a short period. 
he won't be affected by the Hobart phase. So those are his tools he has, and he's preparing to go on his covert mission. And that's what he does in the beginning of chapter 16. And this chapter is one of a couple nice action set pieces in the novel. Um, in fact, two of them involve in take, uh, trying to enter the library. The first was Tin Bane. He's been since killed for this, but he tried to enter the library to save Lada. And he had all these kind of uh, police department tools at his disposal. Now you have Sebastian Hermes, who's a much just a normal guy, right? He's actually pretty old. I think he's he must be in his 60s. Or so he's a reborn. So he I think he died in the 70s and was reborn and he's been around for like 10 years. So he's kind of fairly an old guy, uh, but he's going in with this survival kit. So he's got these kind of tools at his disposal instead of weapons. But they're both kind of have the same goal of, of saving someone from the library. Uh, actually, Sebastian has a harder job because he doesn't have the training and he wants to both save Lada, his wife, who's been kidnapped, and the Anarch. All right, so he goes through the plan. He pretends to be this guy named Lance Arbuthnot, which was actually an old pseudonym that the Uditi, the Uditi movement was using to, um, you know, to kind of plan a, an operation in the library. They actually made an appointment earlier to, to eradicate his, his dissertation. Uh, so he comes and pretends to be that. And then the plan is that while looking over the dissertation, he's going to find that there's a mistake. And before eradicating, he has got to fix that mistake. So he says, I'm going to go to the reading room for 20 minutes and fix it. And then I'll come back for the eradication, right? It's during that time in the reading room when he'll be alone that he's going to, supposed to uh, use the LSB D-bomb, use the time, the, the thing that reduces the Hobart phase, and then implement the plan, right? The plan is essentially to stop time to use the LSD bomb to make the guards hallucinate and then to go in and get the Anarch and, and come out. But anyways, the plan doesn't work. And uh, you can read through this, the events of, of what happened. But basically, the plan doesn't work. He gets essentially trapped in the library and he has to start making decisions. Should he, you, you know, make an effort for the Anarch? Should he try to save Lada? Should he just try to get revenge on Ann Fisher and the other people who have wronged him in this novel? And he's he, at the end of this chapter, he's really in this dilemma where he's got this failed mission and he's got to think how he can make the best of it. Quote, this is what he says to himself. I can't get Lada, he realized. I can't get on the elevator. Not when it's full. Ray Roberts was right. I should have lugged the Anarch out of here and forgotten about Lada. The dead shall live, he thought ironically. The living die. The music shall untune the sky. I am untuned, he said to himself. They have me. I didn't get anyone out as Joan Tinmain did, even temporarily. It might have worked out differently if I hadn't run across Ann Fisher, he thought. He had the strange impression of timelessness now for the drug which he injected himself, a sense almost of immortality, but not the strength, not the magical power. He was felt weak and hopeless. And so Ann Fisher gets all she wants, he thought. Her prophecies are coming true one by one. I'm the last part, and I, like Joan Tinbane and the Anarch and Lada, have come about. End quote. So he has this deep despair over the failure of his mission, and basically he decides it's because he tried to do too much. He tried to, to get both the Anarch and, and Lada out. And this led to despair. And, and he just feels old, impotent, useless at, at this time. And this is the first time, I think, in the novel that he really feels this deep level of despair. Because he's always seemed to get a, lot, get a lot of meaning out of his work, which is reviving these dead. I mean, he's, he sees himself on the side of life. And being put in this position of, of kill or be killed is something that's very disturbing for, for this particular character. Um, and... Uh, you know, he, he feels that his life, because he's getting a second chance, right? His life is less valuable than that of the people who, who haven't been dead, haven't died and been reborn, right? The people who were born naturally, like Tin Bane um, or Lada. These are people who, who had their lives cut short, right? Partially because of the actions that Sebastian Hermes involved with. So he finds himself 
the opposite of what he wanted to be throughout his life, or at least his his real life. Um, so on chapter, in chapter 17, he decides that he'll just cut his losses and just kill Ann Fisher, his big enemy. Now, Ann Fisher was uh, the, the daughter of the head of the library. She seduced him and basically um, kind of got information from him, betrayed him, you know, and he's still so sore about that. But he also was like deeply in love with Ann Fisher in a weird way, even though they had just had that one tryst. So he finally finds her, and it's during this time when he talks to people, he talks out of phase, so he has to talk really slow in order for anyone to understand him because he is not in the Hobart phase the same way. It starts to fade out at this point in the story, though. So that, um, that period of, I don't want to say time, but that period by which that drug is affecting him uh, is, is ending, and he's kind of going back into normal Hobart phase time. But he gets, sees Ann Fisher, and eventually they're able to make a deal. Lada will be returned to him and he'll be allowed to leave the library in exchange for her life. There's really no mention here of the Anarch as part of the deal, right? So she's still good copying him. One thing that Anne Fisher, and actually the library throughout the whole story does a lot is, is present themselves as the good guy always. Always trying to do this public service. Uh, always, always essentially good copying the, anyone they have a, a trouble with or a problem with. And Anne Fisher here is still doing it. So anyways, after this deal's worked out, with uh, Sebastian escapes the library with Lada, right? So he accomplishes one of his goals, but basically by surrendering to, to him and, and saving Ann Fisher's life. Now there's a, a... Now later on, the Uditi, when they hear the story of what happened in the library and Sebastian's failure to get the Anarch out, they're going to say, well, the only reason they made a deal with you is because you were close to getting the Anarch and you had a chance to get him. Right, and they wanted to save him, so they threw you Lada, you know, to get you out of the library. Now that's not really clear here. It it seems it's more of a private part of the private relationship between Ann Fisher and and Sebastian Hermes, who do have a connection from earlier in the in the story. But nevertheless, they're you know he makes a choice to to save Lada rather than to try to save the Anarch. And right, and of course, the Anarch is another person like himself who's lived this, is getting a second chance at life thanks to the Hobart phase. And he's already kind of established that maybe these people who haven't yet lived a full life deserve that, that full life before people like me, these revitalized re, re people, you know, get to live for another 50 years or something. Now, Lada and Sebastian, of course, are worried about the Uditi because the Uditi, you know, sent him in with his equipment to get the Anarch out and not to get Lad out. So their failure will probably mean that the Anarch will be killed or they'll lose their chance to ever get him. So they're going to be upset with him. So Lada and Sebastian start talking about their future together. Can they stay together? Are they going to have to flee, you know, the, the, the world even? Like go to Mars, they start to talk about. So they have this concern. But before they even get to that, though, they, they start to discuss how their relationship at a fundamental level and how they're both cheating on each other over the course of the novel. Sebastian with Ann Fisher and Lada with, with Officer Tinbane. And both of them are kind of out of the picture now. So, you know, they're back... They're kind of forced back together by circumstances, but nevertheless, there's this overhanging burden of of adultery in the backdrop, and and they discuss this a little bit. And this is the common Phil Dick theme, where you have a relationship that gets shattered for some reason. There's usually some kind of adultery taking place, and then you know some future established for that. You know, he throughout the '60s he does this again and again in his stories. I think Clans of the Elfane Moon is a good example of this. 
Um, you have it with um, uh, not wait for last year, of course. That's the most classic example of this. Um, and here's just another example of Dick kind of saying that you, you have to do deal with the relationship you have. You can't always be searching for the ideal relationship. That's, that's going to get you nowhere, right? And it's just going to lead to destruction and kind of finding the Prince Charming is not going to be the success. And you kind of have to work on, you have to cultivate your actual relationships, actually build meaningful connections with people. And, and that lesson is, is in the story as it is in many others. So in chapter 18, they're, they're thinking, they go back to the Vitarium and they're thinking about how they're going to, to hide from the Uditi, right? Do they hide in the Vitarium? Do they get a random hotel and try to hide out there? Do they go to Mars, right? Now, the problem with Mars, and this is the first time we learned this in the story, as far as I remember, is that the Hobart phase seems to only affect Earth, which I think leads us to more and more a theological explanation for this. It's not a, a cosmic experience. It's not like the expansion and contraction of the universe. It, it actually only happens on Earth, you know, where, you know, this time goes backwards. So if he's on Mars, first, there's no dead people buried on Mars, or not many, and the Hobart phase is affected there. So and he's not even sure how this will affect his body even, because he's, of course, affected by the Hobart phase. If he goes to Mars, maybe he just starts going forward in time again, and he'll only live for another 10, 10 years or so. So these are all questions they, they have. Now, Roberts gives a call, Ray Roberts. He's the head of the Udi movement. He's the one who wanted to get, of course, the Anarch awakened and, and offered him the help of the offspring, the secret forces of the Uditi. And he's the one who thinks that, that really they negotiated with you for Lada because they, they, think, they think he could have saved the Anarch if, if given the chance. And basically, at this point, Ray Roberts you know, puts a death sentence on, on Sebastian for his failure to save the Anarch. And it's a conscious choice to free Lada instead of fulfilling his mission. And he scolds him. He says, you have changed human history, you know, or rather you failed to change it. You had your chance and now it's gone. You could have been remembered forever as the Vitarian owner who revived and saved the Anarch. And you never would have been forgotten by Udi or the rest of the planet. And an entirely new basis for religious belief would have been established. Certitude would have replaced mere faith, and the total new body of scripture would have emerged. We sent you. Where is it? We sent you. Now our arrangement regarding you has died. We are free to send in our zealots, but they will probably find a corpse. The library will identify the offspring as being present in the area immediately as soon as one of them enters the building. As Jackie Omene pointed out to me last night, still there's nothing we can do. With them, there's no negotiation. Nothing we can promise will incur the library to release the Anarch. It doesn't resemble the situation with Mrs. Hermes. End quote. So he's despairing that basically all that's up is an outright attack on the library. And that's what's going to happen. He is going to commit to that. But essentially, uh, Sebastian is on the, the shit list for the Uditi and to some degree the library as well. So uh, he's got nothing he hoped for. All he wanted really was to make money. All he wanted was uh, the big sale, right, with, by reviving the, the Anarch. And he ends up with all this, this, this mess, right? But this question that comes up here is like, are more, some lives more valuable than others? And this is something Sebastian seems not to agree with. He, yeah, he sells these people for various amounts of money based on how much they're sort of worth. But he, he claims that he does this because every life is valuable. And reviving these people is meaningful for its own sake. Right. And now he's being told, right, no, there are some lives that are more valuable to to revive. And this is something that's going to come up in the last chapter. Again, where we're 
where I think Sebastian was able to get back to his roots and to his real, the real reason he's in this business of, of, of the vitarium, the, the institutions that revive these, these uh, old dead. Old born, they're called, not old dead. Old born. Now, Sebastian does say he'll try again in the library, but there's not much hope that, that a second chance will be any more successful than a first. Um, so chapter 19, he, he st we start this chapter with Sebastian dreaming he's in his grave and the Anarch seems to appear with him, appear to him, calling him the savior of mankind. And this is going to be the first of three appearances the Anarch gives to him. This one seems to be in a dream, though. The other two are more real, are more realistic, are, more, are real projections of the Anarch, some kind of spiritual projection. But this one might be just a dream, but... He's being called the savior of mankind, which is, of course, a shout out to what a bit of what Ray Roberts was saying. You had the chance to be humanity's savior, but the Anarch seems to be saying something different. Not not. I mean, I guess the way Ray Roberts says it is like you'll be remembered. You'll be the greatest person ever lived or by reviving the Anarch. But the Anarch just says more simply, you'll be the savior of of mankind. He says. You are the savior of mankind. Through you, it will be redeemed. You are the most important person ever born. What do I have to do, Sebastian said, to redeem mankind? You must die again, the anarch answered. But now the dream became wraith-like and hazy, and he began to wake up. He sensed himself in a dream in his conap besides Lada. He sensed that he had dreamed, and so the dream ebbed away from him, leaving a peculiar residue. Some message, he thought, as he turned over, sat up, pushed over the covers away from him, and rose unsteadily to his feet to stand by the bed, deep in thought, trying to remember as much of the dream as possible. So he doesn't really know what this means or what he's supposed to do, but or if this message even is anything but just his subconscious. Now, he goes later to meet with the offspring, and of course, they're really angry at him, but they, they kind of understand. They say, on the one hand, we have this death penalty that we're supposed to implement on you. We're supposed to punish you for your failure. But on the other hand, they also seem to acknowledge that he never was able, would have been able to win in the first place. That there was no way he could have had victory over the library. That even the offspring with all their technology, skill and training, and, you know, they wouldn't have been able to do it very successfully either. So the chances of success were so slow. So they don't really take it personally that he failed. They just, um, they're, they're just kind of following orders. Now, Anne calls, and, and then uh, Sebastian says, well, what can I do? I, I have to kind of make peace with you. And he says, maybe he can ask, he asks sort of the, the library for, for sanctuary for him and, and Anne. Now, this is all a ruse. So he, he asks for sanctuary, and they agree to meet, like in a couple hours in a certain place. And again, this is, a, this is a ruse to essentially get the offspring to grab Ann Fisher, right? Um, so that's kind of something he throws the offspring for, you know, to, to get on their good side, I suppose. So, and he also still wants revenge against Ann Fisher. So he thinks at the very least he can have the offspring kill Ann Fisher for him. So he's pretty pleased with himself at the end of chapter, chapter 19, pushing the offspring onto Ann Fisher instead of having them target, target him. So in chapter 20... Sebastian has another experience where he sees the Anarch. This time it's more like a waking dream. And he, he wonders whether it's a real vision, a really a projection of the Anarch from the library, wherever he happens to be, or whether it's like a residue from the LSD uh, that he had or the other chemicals he took when he did the operation in the library. But he... What does the Anarch talk about? The Anarch doesn't talk about these broad 
missions for Sebastian, like in the dream. He talks about practically about his his issues with 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 Anne, with 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 Anne Fisher and his wife. And he gives him a very clear directive. He says, "Don't have the offspring kill Anne Fisher. Save her." And he's kind of like, "Well, why do that?" And and he says, "Quote: You don't actually hate Anne Fisher. In fact, it's the opposite. You are deeply, violently in love with her." That's why you're so anxious to see her destroyed. Anne Fisher draws off huge quantities of your emotions. The Major Share, in fact. Killing her won't bring you any closer to Lada. You must meet Anne Fisher here on the roof when she lands and warn her not to get into her apartment. Do you understand? You must, in fact, warn her not to go back to the library. You must tell her about the proposed attack. Tell her to arrange for the library to be evacuated. The attack will come at 6 in the evening. At least that's the present operating schedule of the offspring. I think it's possible. I think they possibly will do it. As you have thought yourself, killing is their vocation. And quote. Now, there's a really clear distinction here between the offspring, killing is their vocation, versus Sebastian, whose life is his vocation. He he literally, you know, re, rebirths people, brings people back from from the dead. Um, well, the Anna, the Hobart phase is doing that, but he's helping them get. He's helping them transition to to this life. Um, and the Anarch says, like, you don't have to worry about my mes- message, my, what I'm going to say to the world, because I'm, I'm also going to commune with Roberts. Ray Roberts, the head of the Udi Church, and I'm going to give him the message as well. And it seems the heart of the message is back to this, this idea of overall unity, this, this love of all people, this, this kind of general empathy. That's what the heart of the Uditi, the Udi movement should be. And all this focused on killing and revenge and and the violence, the war between the library and the Udi, this is all getting away from the, the truth that the Anarch wants to convey, which is really one of, of our common experience and common brotherhood. The Anarch also makes it clear that there's no way that anyone can save him, that his life doesn't really matter at this point. That's why he's going to try to give what's left of his message to, to, to Ray Roberts. Um, so anyway, Sebastian then goes to save Ann Fisher. So he intercepts Ann Fisher before she can go into, into her house and be picked up by the offspring. And, and he, he just warns her. But they also talk about the Anarch's message and the threat of the Anarch. And Ann Fisher comes right to it. That She's on the library side here that in the view that the Anarch is a threat to, to the unity of society. Quote, he'll undermine the structure of society and not like that. A baboon come back from the dead spouting holy writ. You should be around him the way I've been. You hear some of the things he says. He says there's no death. It's an illusion. Time is an illusion. Every instant that comes into being never passes away. Anyhow, he says, it doesn't really come into being. It was always there. The universe consists of concentric wings of reality. The greater the ring, the more it partakes in absolute reality. The concentric rings finally wind up as God. It's the source of these things. And they're more real as you get nearer to him. It's a principle of emanation, I guess. Evil is simply a lesser reality, a ring further from him. It's a lack of absolute reality, not the presence of an evil deity. So there's no dualism, no evil, no Satan. Evil is an illusion like decay. He keeps quoting bits of all these old-time medieval philosophies, like Augustine and Ergina and Boethus and St. Thomas Aquinas. He says for the first time he understands them. Okay, is he enough? Is that enough? And she asked him, Sebastian, seriously, what should I do with these doctrines? You know, should we eradicate them? Should we preserve them? How, you know, what good are they? What, how do they really help anyone? And he, he kind of says, well, what if they're the truth? And then Ann Fisher jokes, and this is a really, this is a core set moment in the novel, where Ann Fisher says, well, you can't eradicate the truth. You can't erad the truth. 
the truth is just the truth, right? And, you know, we got this kind of unfolding of science, right? Like each generation maybe gets a little bit closer to the truth. I mean, that's the idea, right? When you maybe study the history of ideas, right? Let me get closer to, to scientific truth over time, right? Each generation builds on the previous one. And of course, if we're eradicating knowledge, it's, it's being ripped away, right? And we, I guess in that sense, with the Hobart phase, the idea is over time, we're going to get over negative time, we're going to get farther and farther away from the truth, right? But that's not what Ann, Ann Fisher says here. The truth is essentially eternal. We can't destroy it. So if it is true, it, it, it's true regardless of our destruction of it, which I guess is makes sense. But at the same time, it, it can be lost to human understanding, right? Humans, humans may not know the truth about the universe. And so there is still a small cost in eradicating it. But I think Dick here is trying to say something about the, the preservation of kind of a fundamental truth beyond whatever facade is put up, right? And then this kind of is some, in a lot of his work, right? The kind of the reality behind the facade of truth. He's been doing that kind of stuff since some of his first novels. So that's this conversation with, with Anne Fisher. He warns her of the threat of the offspring and they say their goodbyes. Later on, when the offspring find out that he warns her, he basically they say that yeah, you're you're in big trouble now. We're we're gonna fulfill our the death sentence now. We're not going to forgive you anymore for that. And he just then he just says, I'll have to settle with cut my losses and and I'll have Lada. That'll be my what I get out of this. That'll be um, all that's left. Settle for this relationship. Settle for the relationship with Lada. Right. He's he's failed in every other aspect of his of his of his career of his missions, uh, of trying to make the best of the situation, he failed at that. So, you know, all he has left is his relationship with Lada. And they think, they actually start to think about maybe we need to go to Mars to hide from the offspring, even though the Mars may lead him to, to dying again. May, he won't have a career there, but maybe they'll be able to make a, a living in the off-world, off-world colonies. Uh, and then the final chapter of of the book so much of this chapter is is made up of press reports from the attack on the library so the library is being attacked by the the udi so whatever the anarch said to ray roberts seems not to affected the the plan to attack the library to get the anarch out um, so there's the, that attack and the really interesting thing here is mavis and the library spend much of this chapter talking to the media and trying to spin spin the media about what their true role is how they're a victim and, and all these so there's a lot of media spin here and it's it's not one of dick's huge themes i think he, he does talk a lot about truth but he doesn't spend that much time talking about news i guess except that maybe the penultimate truth is, is all about news but the media kind of the way people play the media is, is not as common as some other themes but here we see a good example of the of these characters really trying to manipulate the media image and it's very modern right it's it reminds us very much of this day where media is very it's very easy to manipulate and distract it and you know and, and there's a lot of journalism you know what that means journalism is where a reporter just kind of repeats what's been said rather than doing any of their own in-depth reporting and and mavis here is really trying to exploit the 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 i guess the myopia of the media and one thing that mavis has been doing throughout the novel is connecting the the Udien movement to like the watts riots and these other um 
protests from the 1960s. And I don't know where we are in the Hobart phase. Maybe we're like back to the 60s in, in this kind of reverse time. Uh, we must be close because the Anarch peak died in, I think, 1971. And that woman at the beginning of the novel, she died in 1974. So we're kind of back to that period, returning to the 60s, right? We're back to the 60s in this reverse, reverse time formula. So that's going on the TV. And then he gets a, a vision from the Anarch again. And now the Anarch is dying. He, he says he's in the library, but he's been injected with some chemical and he's dying. So whatever that Udite do, destroy the library, kill all the librarians, the, the ERADs, kill Mavis, it's not going to matter. The Anarch is, is done for. And that's what he essentially tells her. Um, the media re reports on this also talk about the survival of institutions which is an interesting aspect of it. Or Anne Fisher is the one who says it, actually. She says, We will construct on the site of the old library building, a much larger, much more modern structure. Blueprints have already been drawn up. We have an extremely firm, fine firm of architects that work right now. Work will begin next week. So that as the library is being destroyed, they're already planning to, to rebuild it. So the institutional power will endure even if um, individuals die. Is that true for the Udite movement? That seems to be true of them, too. The Anarch dies. And Ray Roberts takes, takes up the movement and it has its own life. But it gets farther and farther from its, its mission. So I don't know if that's the future of the library. Can it, can it have a new mission in the aftermath of, of being rebuilt? I don't know. But there's, there's kind of a very depressing permanency of institutions. It's, I'm almost reminded of Autofact, that story in which they, they finally shut down the automated factories, but they end up just finding a new way to reproduce and spread throughout the, the cosmos. So it's Sebastian and Lada watching this news report in chapter 21. Then they have the vision of the Anarch. And not long after this, the offspring, with an offspring member attacks the house and a bomb goes off and it kills Lada and Lada dies. And so all the people around Sebastian that we've met that are like born the regular way, right? And go through time the regular way have been, have been, killed and it's it's these old borns like sebastian hermes that that continue to live um he's really depressed now he feels a complete failure now he has to have absolutely nothing right he's his business is kaput he's wanted by the offspring his wife is dead right he's failed in his mission with the anarch and so he eventually just drives off to the to the graveyard and in the graveyard, he begins to hear the voices of the dead. And this is one of his abilities. He's able to know when people are about to be awakened. So he's got that kind of quasi-psychic power. And what can he do at this point but commit to his job, which is caring for life, caring for the reborn. And that's how the novel ends. The novel ends, he calls Lindy as co-worker, and he says, there's all these people we need to, to rise up. We need to go back to work. And and focus on this and lindy says well you're hurt you're 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 injured in the bomb he was injured in the bomb and he, he finally agrees to go to the hospital um but that's the story the, the novel ends with him driving off to the hospital to get fixed up while also having just committed to to this life's work of of, of raising the dead right and maybe that's what the anarch meant by saying he's a savior of mankind all right, so what do I think of this? I, I reread uh, Your Appointment Will Be Yesterday over the summer, and I recorded this quite a bit later. I, I was doing all the short stories over the summer, um, and then I came back and filled in the novels. And I remember not liking Your Appointment Will Be Yesterday, and I think that's probably still true. I, I'm not sure I like it. Maybe 
it needed all this kind of fleshing out that you have in the novel for to be for the idea to work. I was more bothered by the fact that it was a really clunky time reversal story. I mean, it's some things seem to go backwards, other things seem to go forward, and that that kind of irked me a little bit. But in this novel, what I you find out that Dick doesn't really care about telling a story about time going backwards. He wants he needs time going backwards to have this this issue of the dead rising from the grave, right? So he needs it for the plot and he needs it for the themes he's trying to explore. So, in, you know, I like this novel a lot more than I, I like that story. And it, it's a novel I haven't really looked at it. This might be the first time I actually read through it cover to cover in, in detail. I, I glanced at it a few times before. But, um, so I, I kind of like this. I, I think the most interesting part probably is the dynamics of the library. And the, the funniest part is, is Lata's relation to the library. But uh, a lot of good theology stuff. I think someone who maybe has an experience with medieval philosophy might be able to get a lot of meaning out of this and, and could, could say more about what Dick knows about medieval philosophy and what he thinks about it. Uh, I just know a little bit about Augustine. Man, I don't really know Boethus and, and, and these others. So I didn't really talk about it. In fact, every chapter in the story has an epigraph by one of these medieval or early Christian or medieval philosophers. So someone who has experience in that should, should, should read through this. And if any of you out there do have that experience or knowledge, let me know what you think, how, how, the, how these quotes from these books fit into the themes of, of the story. Um, but what are the main themes we have in the, the novel beyond that? Well, one is the, the cycle of death and rebirth, of time, of, and the meaning of life in the context of that. So, I mean, that's just the whole device that Dick, Dick uses. The dead are coming back to life, giving a second shot at, of, of living. Uh, we got the, and it's, it's because of the reversal of time. Um, obviously, this is what, where a lot of the theological issues come from right especially with the afterlife right it seems this is a shared experience now death is a shared experience that we have but that's the end of the game right having us revived then allows us to have a conversation about the afterlife right not many people seem to remember it but the anarch allows us to then think about the afterlife and so there's a lot of um religious and theological stuff going on in this story again that's probably one of the weaker parts in my own thinking about this i I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm very, very far from a religious philosopher. Um, another issue here is, I think, institutional power and mass movements. That, especially the last scene of the novel with this mass movement attacking the library directly, right? The, the image of institutional power under the threat of mass movements. It's very 1960s, isn't it? Um, I, you know, obviously the library wasn't this coercive, dangerous institution at the time, but there were many others we could point to. Right. So this was published in 67. I don't quite know when he wrote it, but, you know, you have the Vietnam War, you have the, 19, the Students for Democratic Society, the anti-Vietnam War movement, I mean, you got the Students for Democratic Society, you have um, all these other youth movements going on, the hippie movements, the sexual revolution, all these are chal challenging establishment power in various ways by mass movements. And then you got the Black Power Movement, the Civil Rights Movement, and... You know, Dick condenses this all to the conflict between the UDD and the, and the library. But it's, it's a reminder that these are novels of the 60s, and, and Dick's not far from his thoughts about it. Um, and tied to that, of course, is, is black power. Black power comes up a lot in the story. Um, this, this novel has a lot to say about the media as well, um, the way institutions spin the media, the way uh, 
people are presented in the media, right? The you know the way the media sometimes just reports on what's on the the impression of things. We get two major scenes where we see the the media kind of in the forefront of a chapter, right? There's two chapters where the TV's on and it's where they're getting the reports. And in both cases, the media comes off as kind of buffoonish, under the able to be spun by other people, or really just kind of repeating what other people want them to, to say. I wouldn't say fake news, but uh, impotent news maybe is, is what I'm looking for. Um, next, knowledge and control. Of course, it, it's not clear to me why they have to eradicate knowledge, just because people are being reborn. But somehow with the Hobart phase, it's decided. Now, it's not that these books vanish when you know they, they move back in time. They actually have to be physically eradicated. So the institution that takes responsibility for doing this is the library. They be, they, they, they're doing the opposite of preserving knowledge. They're destroying it. But they also then get a lot of political power over that. And even they even have like military forces. And they kidnap people and torture them and... It's a scary place, right? We see again and again a lot of terrified of going to the library. Other people know the library is a scary, horrible place. Um, so the, the control of knowledge is is tied very carefully here to to power, and that's why the the ERADs are so important. Why the library is so important in the story. We have again relationships as a theme here. We got Lada and Sebastian's relationship. Both have affairs. This is typical Phil Dick fair. I, I don't know how much more I need to say about this. He always comes back to it. Um, but I, I think what he's really searching for is what's the foundation for meaningful relationships. Um, and, you know, they can't be automated, right? The same way he doesn't think work should be automated. Relationships can't be automated. They can't run on autopilot. I don't know if you want to say you have to work at them, but, you know, maybe there's not a better way to say it. It. I think it's they have to be based in something real and meaningful and and that's not just like sex it's not just uh like an not having a conflict maybe it's it's actually having a connection in a relationship with someone right cultivated over over a period of time and sebastian's constantly put in this position where he has to make a choice between his career his 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 future you know and and Lada, and he seemed to make the wrong choice most of the time. And finally, at the end, when he makes the choice to commit to Lada, to commit to that relationship, she's, she's killed, right? And he feels a real sense of loss in doing that. So there seems to have been something real in that relationship. But when we allow the, the baloney, the, the bullshit to interfere with us seeing that, we get these corrupted views of relationships, right? When we let the affair or we let the, the fight or we let the emotional problem or the drug addiction or whatever it might be, you know, distort from us building an actual connection with someone else. Right? I, I think in a way, Dick's very much a conservative when it comes to like saving relationships. I don't know if I'd say he's like a sexual conservative or a moral conservative about relationships, but he's a conservative in the sense that he wants to conserve relationships, right? And the some of the most triumphant moments in his novels are when people are able to look past all those human failings and, and just connect with someone as a person, right? It's really about empathy, right? What else? Uh, religion. Uh, this is a really good example in Dick's fiction of a new religious movement. Uh, we see it, of course, in the black box and um, Faith of Our Fathers, which I don't think I, I posted yet. You know, where there's, there's 
kind of movements that are that are quasi-religious or, or have a religious element. His final novel, or at least the final novel published during his life, is about new religious movements. Uh, it's a more common theme in the second half of his, or the later part of his career. We're going to see more examples of, of new religious movements. Here's the Uditi, which is tied to African-American uh, kind of black power religions that we saw in urban spaces in the 60s, 50s and 60s. Um, Drugs, does drugs come up in this story a little bit? Madness doesn't. There's not much mental illness in this story. But there's a little bit of drug use with the LSD and the, the anti-LSD use and, and the hallucinations that, that Sebastian has. So there's, there's a little bit to say here about drugs, but not much of a contribution overall to, to Dick's views of drugs. For that, you want to look, of course, to Three Stigmata, Palmer Eldridge, and, and other tales like that. So I, I think that does it. That does it for what I want to say about Counterclock World. Um, so thanks for bearing with me in this series, this four-part series. I like the novel in, in reading it again. I, or actually reading it for the first time cover to cover. Uh, I'm glad I, I took the time to, to look at it properly. I was thinking about doing it in a one-off episode, but I, when I started getting into it, I changed my mind. So uh, what's coming up? Well, what's coming up is I think we got a few short stories, uh, the 1968 short stories. There might be two or three, maybe just one. I don't, I don't know. I have to look it up. But th there's at least one short story he published in 1968. And then we're going to look at Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which um, should be lots of fun. I'm rereading it right now. So uh, I'm looking forward to sharing my thoughts about Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. One of the novels that, that people who don't even read Philip K. Dick maybe have read, you know, because sometimes it gets published as Blade Runner. You know, but we'll see. Uh, a really great novel coming up. A sad one, depressing one, one of his bleakest uh, stories by far, but worth taking the time to look at. So I'll probably do that in five or maybe even six parts, depending on how, I'm, how I feel. So uh, leave your own thoughts about Counterclock World below. Let me know what you think, especially if you have any contribution to make to the theological aspects of the story. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Um, but then I'll see you next time with uh, a short story or two. And contentment forever If you